0: Therapist, I'm your host Renee here with my co-host slash producer slash babysitter slash straight man Josh. Say hi Josh. Hi. Hi. <laughs> um. Hey so we have a fascinating guest coming up. Her name is Sadla but before we get to that just a couple of things I wanted to remind you if you are interested in being a guest on the podcast simply email us at the psychotherapist podcast at gmail.com. If you would like to DM me through Instagram instead, you can find me at psycho underscore therapist underscore Renee. Um, also, a little note about episode five. So, here's what I was doing I was trying to set up subscriptions, right? I had this whole great idea. We're going to do a $4.99 subscription, and you're going to get a t shirt and other merch. You're going to get free meditation files and free texting support, all this stuff, and also that I was going to have parts of episodes maybe blocked off. I was playing around with that, and I accidentally completely locked episode five, so nobody can get into episode five. I've unlocked it, but for whatever reason, Josh is laughing because this is why I'm not allowed to do anything but talk, because the minute I start touching tech stuff, everything fucking just falls apart. Um... For whatever reason, it's like a monthly thing, so Spotify won't remove the lock until the month that the subscription would have lasted for is over, and that's like, I don't know, like May something. So I apologize. It will eventually be unlocked. We are not going to lock content. I'm not going to do that in the future. That's just a mistake. That's the first thing. (laughs) The second second thing is that uh, we started last week uh, answering questions. Questions that have been sent to me either by listeners who email them or by Instagram followers who send them to me there. And so this week, I am going to answer a question that came to me from Katie. Katie wants to know where to start with using nutrition for mental health purposes. I love this question. This is one of my favorite topics. I could talk about this for days. I will not. Katie has very... Wisely asked me where to start with this, not for the whole program. So that's what we're going to do. Um, I don't like to start with taking things out of the diet. It just, people don't like that. It's not the right tone to set. However, because we're not going through a whole program and I'm just giving you little bits of it, I am going to talk about things to avoid as well as one thing to add. So I will give you two things to take out, two things to add. Do with them what you will. Uh, We are focusing right now, I think, on inflammation. If we're talking about using nutrition to improve our mental health, then we certainly want to make sure that we are avoiding inflammatory foods as well as eating foods that decrease inflammation. Inflammation can exacerbate anxiety and depression, physical pain, all sorts of things. It's just basically, you know, wellness negative. So, that's a really solid foundation for starting to improve your mental health and your physical health with nutrition. So to that end, you want to avoid canola oil and cane sugar like they are pathogens because they basically are um, they, there are all sorts of problems with both of those things. But for now, we're just going to focus on the inflammatory properties. These are both super tricky. Canola oil is in everything. Restaurants use it because it's cheap. Um, it's put into processed foods because, again, it's cheap. So it's actually very hard to avoid. This is not a mastery endeavor. You just want to avoid it as much as you can. And likewise, unfortunately, cane sugar, disaster from an inflammation perspective, from a disease perspective. The good news there. You can have as much honey as you want. You can have as much maple syrup as you want. You can have coconut sugar. Coconut sugar is innocuous. It isn't good for you. It's not bad for you. Honey and maple syrup are actually nutritious as well. They are good for you. So get those in as much as you can. There's a lot of really good alternatives now in terms of gelato, my favorite Vixen kitchen, the Who candy bars. There's all sorts of stuff out there right now sweetened with things that are not likely to give you diseases. So look for those. And then in terms of adding two things, two of my favorite hacks are to put turmeric root and kale in everything, but in a way that you don't even notice them. For people who don't love kale, which I get, it's kind of fibrous. And turmeric, I think we all associate with curry because turmeric powder has that, like, curry flavor and smell. In this case, you're talking about turmeric root. You're going to buy some, you're going to peel it, and you're going to grate, like, one inch of it into everything savory that you cook. You won't even really notice it. It has a very light, very floral flavor, but it is packed with nutrition, with disease-fighting, Um, properties with anti-inflammatory properties. It's a magic root. It's lovely and delicious and so, so good for you. Just grate that into everything. And then with kale, you want to take the ribs out and then you want to chop it up really really finely like you would with like parsley or an herb and again put it into everything savory that you cook it will cook down you won't even notice it this one's just about general nutrition more so than anti-inflammation properties it's just basically the most nutritious food out there so sneak that into everything get your turmeric in there be on the lookout for canola oil be out the lookout for cane sugar those things alone should make a substantial difference. You may not notice the difference for a month or two while your system sort of cleans itself out and readjusts, but I promise you huge difference. Thank you for the question, Katie. And with all of that said, let's get back to Sadla. So we haven't spoken. And as a result, I am just going to let you start by where, well, I'm going to let you start wherever you want to (laughs) start. What do you want to talk about?
1: Uh, Well, I did note down some things uh, that were like things that I wanted to discuss with you, but I think it requires like a little bit of background. Uh, So uh, I come from a very, very small uh, village in India. And so my like the first memory of my life is during third or fourth grade. Um, That's when my mom told me that um, like the the father figure who was living with me wasn't my dad, and I have another biological dad. So then that's when she took me to meet him, and turns out I also had a sibling there. So that's, like, the, the biggest change that happened in my life, where I was like, oh, oh there's yeah. like,
0: more, fam- more family members who aren't here. So you said this was third or fourth grade when you found yeah. this out, and you don't have memories before that? No, I don't. Hmm, okay. So the first memory is your mom telling you she was bringing you to meet your father.
1: Yes. It was very gentle introduction. It wasn't okay. like a
0: shock or anything. It wasn't? It was okay. very, yeah. Yeah. Okay.
1: Uh, and then, so the, uh, like my parents had gotten married. It was an arranged marriage. And then after I was born, like soon after that, they separated and then my mom remarried. Okay. And then I just lived with uh, my uncle and my mom.
0: Your uncle and your mom. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I call my stepfather my uncle. So, yeah, is that is that uh, col- is that a cultural norm? Uh, yeah, okay. yeah, okay. It,
1: yeah, uh, divorces and second marriages were like weren't so common back okay. then. Okay, okay. So, or or even right like, now in India, I mean, yeah. <laughs> um. So then, uh, at the end of fourth grade, my mom she said that well this is a very small place and, uh, we need to, you know, move. Like we were very poor. We were okay. very, very, very poor. So she was like, okay, we need to do something for better education. So I'm going to send you to Mumbai, which is a city, a really nice city. Uh, and it's a boarding school. So, oh, okay. Yeah. So fifth grade onward, she sent me to boarding school. So I would spend the entire year there and then come back home during summer breaks.
0: Right. I actually went to boarding school myself, although I was a day student at the boarding school, but I I am familiar with the setup that mine was in Connecticut. Uh, So this was fifth grade. Did you stay in boarding school until, okay. Would you, would you say that that was, I understand it was better from an educational perspective. How was it otherwise? Was it difficult?
1: Uh, So like considering the, financial circumstances at that time I knew that education was the only way out okay so at that time it seemed like an excellent idea to me yeah yeah because I was I was just thinking like okay education and the next step is stability which is something that you know I realized early on that was missing and having like a really significant impact but now uh, I'm a school psychologist, so uh, a lot of the grad school and then a lot of the work right now centers around how important a relationship with parents is.
0: Yes. And
1: I realized more and more and more every day that it's
0: wasn't a good idea. <laughs> no, no. Well, yeah. T- yeah, it was a hard situation to have to choose. To have to choose yeah. between getting an education or being with your family is a really horrible choice, right? Yeah. So uh, fifth grade, sixth,
1: seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, I, go to, like, I spent years at boarding school and then come back home in summer. So by tenth grade, I started feeling a l- like a lot more resentment towards my mom For doing that and I like I started feeling like a sense of diaspora that I'm a visitor yes right right and then go back to the this other place which is also not mine right right
0: right you didn't really belong at either place after a while because you're not in your home during most of the year but you don't really I see where the population of your boarding school I'll tell you that at mine the majority, like probably ninety percent of the kids of the kids at my boarding school were like sickly rich, like like multiple oh. houses rich. I was my family was wealthy compared to like the average, I think, but we just had one house, right? So there I was pretty much poor. So I'm wondering at your school, what was the population?
1: So it was basically essentially an orphanage. Oh it was a com- very it was different a than my community. Than mine. Okay. Yeah, it was oh, a community okay. uh, in, like initiative where uh, they wanted to focus on girls' education. But all of these places around Mumbai were like, you know, families were poor or families just couldn't take the burden of educating girls. So they would all send. So it was just girls. And it was limited resources, basically.
0: Did you have access to adults who were able to be supportive in terms of developmental and social-emotional things?
1: Uh, I No, no. There were caretakers who were supposed to make sure that we are eating, cleaning ourselves, and, you know, just going to school on time. Coming Absolute back. basics, right, right. Yeah. Cell phones weren't allowed, so I could only speak with my mom once or twice a year whenever she could get through this one telephone that was in the entire campus.
0: Uh, said let, let me ask you just to place this in time. How old are you? Uh, I'm 28 now. Oh, okay. So this was not, this was, you were in, you graduated high school then in what year?
1: Uh, I think 16, 17. Okay.
0: So this was not that yeah. long ago. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so no cell phones. You don't get to talk to mom very often.
1: Yeah. And then 10th grade is when I was completely done with this lifestyle of being placed under such restrictions. And like I was done with it. I found no meaning in having such a restricted lifestyle. Yeah. So I told my mom that like this is done and we could move to another city and I will go to college in that city. So this other city is called Hyderabad. And then my mom said, "Okay, well, I'm. I also don't want you to be so far away from me. And now we have a little bit more money, and we move. Like we move our houses and everything. I go start going to the college, and two months in, I get a call from the boarding school saying someone is interested in sponsoring me for an international
0: education. Oh wow!
1: Yeah. So uh, that was again a dilemma. Like there is this again. There is this." Important thing that can change our lives, but it is away from your family. So, uh, my mom and I discussed this for a really long time. And then, even though it was really hurtful to make that decision, I knew that, you know, if I significantly wanted a better life, I have to do this. Like, I have to take this offer. Then I come back to Mumbai again for this program. And now, my like the intellectual capacity and the resources that I have were so like the environment of this international program was just so on my intellectual level that I was in it I started finding uh, a lot more outside of what that restricted life had
0: presented me okay okay and where where did this where was this Mumbai oh it was in Mumbai okay yeah So two years go by.
1: I'm completely like changed. I have new interests. I want to be a psychologist at the end of this. And then I tell my mom, okay, I'm not coming back. I love Mumbai and I want to be here for my college. Yep. So that changes. And then after that, I moved to New York for my master's in school psychology and then moved to California for work.
0: Okay. Got it. So you landed in what part of California? Uh, San Jose the Area. Uh, yep. Yep. And let me ask yeah. you during all of this time, because it stands out to me as you're pointing out that you, because you were away from your family and so immersed in education, it sounds like you were alone a lot. Is that true? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So by the time, uh,
1: go ahead. Sorry. I, I was just going to say like alone, uh, like away from family too, but also like uh, I was always like for strength and always studying and reading books so uh, the intellectual stimulation that I needed from friends or people around me was also felt like a gap
0: yeah right
1: so yeah like this theme of just constantly feeling like this odd person was mm-hmm. like just so consistent yep
0: yep so you get to San Jose for m- your master's degree in school psychology yeah. Okay. No, I get to New York. New York. I'm sorry. Degree. And then you moved to San yeah. Jose for work. Sorry. Sorry. That's right. Yeah. OK. So yeah. how long were you
1: in New York? Uh, three years of my program. So, yeah, three years and then now here.
0: How was the time in New York where there I mean, in New York, there does tend to be a more diverse population. Was that comforting? Yeah. at all? Yeah. Yes.
1: Uh, the cohort that I was with was amazing. I felt like I just belonged with that group so much better just like in terms of um, like my passion and interest with education and children and all of that. So that kind of fell into place where I felt like, OK, my like there are other people who have same interests and yes. same capacity as me. Yes. But then this is also when like I started speaking English more often and like home is so far away with the time zone difference and like there's no shared activities with any of my cousins or my mom or like for like more separation from that uh but I enjoyed New York and it was a really nice program and like uh, sorry I forgot I was building up a history
0: (laughs) Uh, (laughs) that's okay
1: (laughs) so like Presently in my life, I am realizing very, um, like, in a very difficult way that behaviorally, I know what to do. Like, I know, when you are friends with someone, this is what you do to take care of them show appreciation and this or that and just like all of that. But this emotional vitality seems to be missing. Like, I don't know. It's like the source is missing. It's like I don't know where that root is supposed to go and feel connected to other. In, you're,
0: to, you're not feeling connected to other people. You mean? Uh, I'm not
1: mm, more within myself. Like I don't know where that source is in myself. Like I can never truly feel joy very easily. Or okay,
0: okay. Do you feel? Do you feel distress? Or are you sort of numbed out?
1: More numbed out. More numbed I've only out. started to feel and become aware of this since I've been working with kids.
0: Yeah, and that'll do it.
1: Like, yeah. And like just reading up research and everything. I like I don't have any um, resentment with my mom uh, because I know she that was the best she could do. But there's this feeling of grieving what I could have had if I yes, was Yes, yes, yes.
0: Yes. Okay. Well, and I'm curious, when you started the history and you mentioned that you don't have any memories before third or fourth grade. So with every client that I work with in my practice, after the consultation, the first thing we do is a chronological life history. And so Mm -hmm. I am very regularly ask people when their first memory is. And for, I don't know, like 95% of people who answer, it's between the ages of two and four, most frequently three three or four years old there mm-hmm. are certainly people who have cha- who ha- who had chaotic childhoods who had traumatic childhoods who have big chunks of time missing or who don't remember things before a certain time and generally um, the explanation for that is one of two things either that the environment or the situations were so stressful that the child, had to dissociate a lot to survive, and in that case, wasn't present to make memories. The other issue is that cortisol, the stress hormone, can block memory formation. So not having any memories for all of those years suggests this, certainly, I don't know this for sure, but it suggests that your childhood before you met your dad was, was somehow stressful or chaotic or difficult. And I guess with you telling us that you were very poor, that might be enough of a reason. But do you have an idea of what that time was like?
1: Um, I honestly don't know. It's only recently that I've started thinking about it. Like okay. my sibling will tell me all of the stories when we lived with him. And I have no recollection of those things. Mm-hmm. To me, it seems like that never happened. Like I can't mm-hmm. even... You know how sometimes when people tell you stories so convincingly that your brain is like, yes, oh, yeah, yeah, that happened. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Even that is not happening. Like, that's not wow. happening with me. Wow. It's like sitting in a train going on a journey and then, you know, there's like flowers on the other side. Su- that That sense of disconnection of what is there, but isn't there. Like, you're not feeling it.
0: Right, right. Like you're wearing some sort of like sensory deprivation suit moving through the world. Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. So I would, you left home for boarding school at about 10 years old. Yeah. Is that right? Mm hmm. Okay. So how were your friendships at that school? Did you have any substantial friendships? that sort of offered any, some sort of support or a feeling of familial connection. Did you have that yeah. there? You did.
1: Okay. Yeah. Friendships were excellent because we were all
0: Orphans. in the same. Yeah.
1: Right. <laughs> yeah. Like initially there, there was a lot of system of like punishing for like being late and oh, not gosh. wearing the right outfit and all of that. Like punishments was just like such a big part of all of our what like, what, what types of years. punishments? Well, uh, it starts with insulting, saying embarrassing things out in uh, like in front of a group, asking to like kneel down for 20 minutes or things like that. I mean, mm. yeah. Yeah. So it was difficult when I was the only one, but it was easy when my
0: friends were mm, there. Of course, so of course. Of... <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. OK, so so excellent friendships. Excellent the friendships time. is in New York as well.
1: Uh, New York, I was in a relationship when I was in New you York. You were, and that... I was
0: going to ask that next. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. How? Uh, that, sorry.
0: No, nope, you go ahead. The relationship in New York, what were you going to say?
1: Yeah. So, uh, college was fine. Work was fine. The relationship aspect wasn't fine. So I didn't end up making like long lasting friends from okay. there, but I do have a couple of cohort people who are more like okay. more than classmates, but not exactly friends.
0: Let's take a break here before we start digging into this. And why don't we do pranayama breathing? Just the reminder that is in through your nose, six count, hold your breath, six count, out through your mouth, six count. There's no hold after the exhale. That's box breathing. We're going to do pranayama this time. And I will count you through five breaths. I'm going to do them a little faster because a few people have told me that they are having trouble inhaling and holding for a full six count. So just a few tips on that. On the inhale, when you think you've taken in as much air as you can through your nose... Take a few more little sips, like, like just try to really stuff a few extra breaths in there. You know, it sounds we're doing a relaxation exercise, and I want you to get violent with your diaphragm. Just really fucking jam that air in there. No, seriously though, see if you can open up a little more space on the inhale. And it's okay if you have to start holding if you don't get the counts exactly. It's not that serious. Um, but that'll help on the inhale. And on the exhale, make sure you're getting all of that air out. Like keep blowing until you are almost coughing. Um, but I will also do it a little faster to make that easier. Okay, So ready, you're going to inhale through your nose, hold it and go out through your mouth. Six counts all around. and inhale two, three, four, five, six. Hold your breath. Two, three, four, five, six. Exhale, two, three. Four, five, six, inhale, two, three, four, five, six, hold your breath, two, three, four, five, six, exhale, two, three, four, five, six. Inhale, two, three, four, five, six. Hold your breath, two, three, four, five, six. Exhale, two, three, four, five, six. Inhale, two, three, four, five, 6. Hold your breath. Two, three, four, five, six. Exhale. Two, three, four, five, six. Inhale. Two, three, four, five, six. Hold your breath. Two, three, four, five, six. Exhale. Two, three, four, five, six. You're done. <laughs> Oh, breath work is way more fun for us than it is for everybody else. Yeah, we yeah. got to get that dance cam. So. <laughs> Dan- <laughs> okay, let's get back to it with Sadla. So what I'm poking around at is that um, it's you've, you've intimated that you regret or it's not resentment, but you do feel that there were things that you could have had that you didn't have that were important because you weren't with your family and because you lived yeah. a childhood that was primarily... First about survival when your family was very poor and then pretty strictly about academics and compliance. So this is a really constricted range of being. Yeah. Like you're in this sort of very small range of behaviors and experiences. And so it would I would imagine that there were a lot of difficult feelings that you had to push away. Being family sick or homesick or being lonely or being scared or, you know, being hurt, being all of these things when maybe you had friends but you didn't have the appropriate adult support. There weren't other adults stepping in to help provide resilience to you as a child because for children that is a really important part of resilience is having at least one supportive, positive adult can create That can create a lot of resilience for children, and it seems that that wasn't really something that you had. And so it makes sense to me that you would uh, figuratively, you know, energetically dial down your feelings. Yeah. Right? You don't want to have to feel yep. all that bad. You need to learn. You need to survive. Of course, the problem with dialing down our feelings is we don't get to do so selectively. Right? Mm-hmm. So if we dial down the pain that we feel, we're also dialing down the joy that we feel. So, I suspect that it has been a decades long process of numbing yourself for survival. Does that sound right, or do you think it's something it, else?
1: It sounds exactly what happened. Okay. Like, and, but then I have a question about that. What's that? I, when I get angry, it's <laughs> destructive. Yeah. It's so, fuck yeah, it angry. is.
0: As it should be. So,
1: <laughs> so how come? Positive emotions are dialed down. Like, I have to do so much to feel like a sense of joy or contentment, yeah, yeah. but then
0: a little thing is like so easily making me angry and ragey. Such a great question. So, if I, you do follow me on Instagram, right? That's how, yes. Yeah. Okay. So then you know you've been inundated already with how often I. Explain that all negative emotions have jobs. So anger's job in every situation is to alert you to the fact that there is a boundary problem. And the boundary problems in your story, Sadla, are so, so terribly sad and intense because there was a boundary around your family, that you weren't inside of because you were away, right? There were all of these boundaries around your behavior that were imposed by other people, and there's just there's boundary problems everywhere, in addition to which there's sort of this growing boundary problem as time goes on of you and your connection to yourself and the world. So the anger makes a tremendous amount of sense, right? The anger is coming up because it, it's, it's being triggered By these, The boundaries are the reason you're not feeling anything is what I'm trying to say, right? So I have a client. We talk about this a lot. One of my clients, and I know he's listening to this and he knows who he is, um, who has had a problem with anger and irritation and annoyance, particularly with his wife and other family members and sometimes just people in general. He also is very um, self-protective and therefore closed off from other people. He doesn't willingly connect to people. He's very, very averse to vulnerability. And the way that we framed it is that the anger is there for him because there's this boundary around himself that he can't push through to connect to anybody else or to connect to his experiences. So the very thing that's making it such that he can't feel anything is the very same thing that's fueling the anger. Does that make sense?
1: It does. Because I do tend to have like really, I don't know. Some of my friends have joked, like, like I have high standards for friendship, but I would feel offended by it because I don't really. But it's just that I keep people away. Yes,
0: yes, yes.
1: So then that would make sense if my boundaries are transgressed, then.
0: Yes, your system is trying to tell you it's it's a really, really tricky metabolism because the experience of feeling angry does not instinctively lead one to think, oh, I'm angry because I have to try to connect to people. It has the exact opposite effect, right? We sort of push people away. But I think that your anger, part of what's motivating that anger is exactly what you just said about keeping people away. I think your anger wants you to push through that. But it's tricky because the experience is that there's something that's offending us or bothering us, and anger can make us more protective of ourselves. Right. So it's tricky because you're both experiencing boundary violations, maybe in an extra sensitive way. I don't like the word, uh, the term extra sensitive, just in a sensitive way because of your relational history, but also that you aren't experiencing connection to people and the anger is trying to push you through that.
1: So how do I how do I try to have feelings of anger in a better way? Like, oh, okay. I I don't want to I don't want to push people away because that adds to my sense of loneliness. Like, I want to have friendships and relationships that make me feel like I belong here.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: you know, like I have a system here, but
0: well, I also want to protect myself. Uh, yeah, of course you do. I think that. The question, we might need to change the question a little bit. The Ultimately, mm-hmm. we want to answer the question, how can you experience your anger differently, process it differently, and not have it interfere with your connection to people? That is certainly among the things we want to get you to. In order to yeah. get there, though, I think we want to take a more general look at how the trauma lives in you because this is just one strand of it, of a, of a, of a larger mm-hmm. sort of knot, right? Um, yeah. So in order for me to tell you how to get out of that, and I will, I just need to know a little bit more um, about just how you're functioning, what's going on inside and outside. So what are your current relationships in terms of friendships or partners or family that you are in frequent contact with? Who are the people whom you are regularly connected to in any sort of way?
1: So um, my relationship with my mom has changed significantly.
0: Okay. Oh, tell like me it, about it's that. Gotten,
1: it has gotten better, even though it's just over the phone and texting. Okay. Um, and I have a really good relationship with my sibling who also lives in the U.S. So the the family relationships have gotten much much better. Like I do feel the love for both of them. Also, my dad has been absent all of this time, so right. that's why I'm like, right. yeah, right. <laughs> so uh, with them it's really good it's I would say it's a little bit more attuned in the sense that my mom will understand when I'm angry and say something supportive and when I'm not angry she'll say something like if like provide solutions so there's this um kind of a matching thing going on where she has like our relationship just allows so much more space to do that uh I have good friendships in the Bay Area and I have a relationship where uh it's so much different than
0: my previous ones. Oh so you have a partner? Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about that relationship? It's uh I
1: don't know, can you ask a
0: specific question? <laughs> <laughs> the way your voice just changed is adorable. <laughs> oh, is it new? Yeah. Ah, there it is. I hear that and that voice. That was so cute. Okay, do you date men, women, both? What's your... It was exclusively men. Exclusively and... men, okay.
1: Yeah, okay. and it's not exclusively men anymore.
0: Oh, it was exclusively men, and it is not exclusively men anymore? Is that what you just said? Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. so is this a man about whom we are talking?
1: No. No
0: excellent
1: <laughs> um it's so recent I haven't yeah. been able or fully ex- but I like being in this space I like being um uh, in this relationship where I feel so much at home uh, so much understood and supported and it's a whole new level of um just like letting someone into my life and it's I mean just considering from uh, like how poor we grew up and like my family is way more different than I am like sometimes I feel guilty for the lifestyle that I have and they still don't but I've kind of learned to like you know this is the way it is for me and I do best whatever I can for them so in that sense I feel very much connected and um
0: happy (laughs) good 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 congratulations yeah Okay. So that's great. That's exciting. Are you... Okay. So the reason I wanted to talk about relationships is I want to talk a little bit about your experience of vulnerability. Because it does tend to interfere with our ability to be close to people. If those of us who feel the need to protect ourselves and given the way that you grew up, it would, of course, it makes sense that you do. So are you having, you said this relationship is very different and is your experience that you feel, what's the word I want here, safer?
1: Safer for sure, yes, 100%. But I'm very bad at being vulnerable. I don't want to accept uh, someone taking care of me and right. like, I don't want to accept someone um, like doing things for me. I don't know. I just feel sometimes it gets a little bit transactional, like, Oh, remember they did this for you last time. So you, you know, like just, I, it, it gets it's transactional
0: not... for you. Do you mean that you hold it in mm-hmm. your head? Like there's a score like that. Oh
1: yeah. Okay. yeah. And okay. just so I can give it back. And that way I won't be, You know, I wouldn't owe anyone anything.
0: Okay. Before I take a big bite out of that, what do you think that's about?
1: Just so I'm free from people because if I owe them something, then I'm not free from them and they can ask me for it and then I owe them it. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. I know that experience very, very well. That is a familiar one to me. I think that vulnerability, right, is a problem for a lot of people for many different reasons. And the way that you're mm-hmm. talking about this, about the owing someone something, the sort of uh, emotional or otherwise the obligation, mm-hmm. my, I'm going to it, engage my countertransference here. So I'm talking about this from the perspective of my own experience, not so much strictly clinically. My mm-hmm. experience with this has been that because I did not have a mom who really took care of me in any emotional way at all. Right. And Mm who was sort of who mocked me a lot, made fun of me a lot. And I'm hearing that this happened to you at boarding school, that 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 your caretakers had a similar uh, punishment strategy to my mom's, which is to insult you and tell you everything that's wrong with you. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that those circumstances certainly create an aversion to any sort of vulnerability. Right. Because our experiences of it have been wholly negative. We're not having modeled for us, you know, anybody interacting with us in their own positive, emotionally vulnerable way. And we don't have the experience of these normal familial relationships, for example, because my family is was wildly dysfunctional and disjointed and all of those things. I didn't have grow up with like. You know, people say things or have said things to me throughout my life when I've been in couples, like someone, one of my boyfriend's friends is getting married and he'll say, you know, well, you have to go to his fiance's bridal shower. And I'd be like, I don't have to do anything because I, that's not a thing in my life. I didn't, you don't have to go to this person's house for dinner or we don't have to be at that place. Like my family didn't do things together. So I didn't grow up with practicing any Mm -hmm. sort of like, this is what we do when we're connected. You know, you just do this and you do this. Like I didn't have that. And so the idea of somebody doing something for me feels like suspicious, right? Or rather, yeah. I'm suspicious and it's suspect. Like, what? Why are you doing that? You yeah. must want something. Right? And yeah. and I think most of the time, Sadler, people probably aren't keeping score the way we are because hmm. many people have had sort of more normal experiences, right? Of growing up with parents who took care of them and did things for them that were nice just for the sake of doing it, right? And I think Uh you and I didn't really have that. We had the opposite. So when somebody approaches us with generosity and kindness, I think we're a little side-eyed, yeah? Like, whoa. (laughs) And it's scary. Like, what are you going to want from me? Like, it's not so much that we don't want to give, which is how it seems. It's that we don't know. It's the uncertainty. What am I supposed to do now? Right. Like, does this mean I have right. to give you a kidney or a ride to the airport? I don't know. <laughs> you know what I mean, like the, yeah. we're the ones experiencing it transactionally. <laughs> right. We're sort of quantifying it because we don't have the qualitative experience. Like, I don't just have this experience of you care for people and so you do things for each other. That just isn't how you and I grew up. Right. Right. And so we have to start to learn that as adults. Another guest on the show, number episode number five, Ari, who's my client, I talk mm-hmm. with them a lot about this because they had a parent who basically taught them not to have friendships and they are just learning now in their late 20s, early 30s, how to participate in friendship. And sometimes that we have to have conversations like, okay, so-and-so did this for me and wants me to do this. If I don't want to do it, is this a good place for a boundary or is this a place where in support of the friendship... I offer I offer help. Right. Like those things Mm -hmm. get very hard to figure out when you haven't had a normal relational experience growing up.
1: So it does it does seem like even though I'm happy and safe, it does seem very effortful.
0: Yes. Yes. So what we what we want to look toward is there will be a time Mm -hmm. when it won't be like this when you will okay. be able to participate in relationships in a natural way. And it sounds to me like you're starting to get some practice in this romantic relationship. Yes. Yes. it, it,
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a big change for me in terms of dating the opposite gender versus dating the same gender. And yeah. a lot of the things are new and, Which I'm not, I'm not worried about the new part. I'm just worried
0: about what do I do part. Like, (laughs) yeah,
1: (laughs) like I don't have the words.
0: No, it's okay. You don't have to. Does your partner know your history? Yes. Okay.
1: So, yeah, but she grew up here. You know, like, it's like the only introduction is through
0: stories. Uh,
1: mm-hmm. She's going
0: to travel with me this summer. I'm going to see my mom after five years. Oh, wow. Oh, right. Yeah. pandemic really got in the way of that, too, huh?
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah. the first three years, I had uh, the right kind of visa, but didn't have the money. And the last couple of years, I had the money, but didn't have the right kind of visa. Okay. Finally, I have money <laughs> and the right kind of visa, <laughs> so I'm going to go.
0: <laughs> oh, good, 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 good. Okay. So we'll come back to relationships. One other thing I just want to bring up before I forget is that you are a school psychologist. And yeah. you may or may not know I was a public school teacher for 12 years. And now I learned Yeah, now I'm a therapist. <laughs> so um, I am wondering how you find... I, well, in my experience, school psychologists do a lot more testing and evaluation than... Yeah. Okay, so is that the primary... Is that the primarily what you do is testing and evaluation? Is that right? Yes. And counseling. You do that's what I was going to ask. You do counseling. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. Do you find yourself getting triggered by your clients? Interestingly, no. Wow, that's great.
1: Yeah, I there's this there's something about working with kids that it just feels so genuine and something it feels like I was born for this and I'm good at it and I genuinely care and I like I'll research all of these strategies and use those and Aww. like it's perfect it's yeah? so good Good feels good is good and I want to keep doing it forever fabulous so yeah like I, I, I did think about it, like, you know, sometimes what if I get triggered by something that's similar to my history or something that, you know, yep. but
0: hasn't happened
1: yet. And I've worked with many kids until now, even when I was in India, I was working with kids. So
0: I, yeah, that's, I think it sounds like maybe you're having the chance to support your students in a way that you weren't supported. So you're giving yes. it to yourself and to them, right? Is that bad? Is no. That... Oh, my gosh, no. No, 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 no. I understand why you're asking me that, though. I do understand why yes. you're asking me that. Um, okay. I think, well, I think I understand. I make a lot of assumptions. <laughs> Let me make sure I no, know why. No, Are you asking me that because you're wondering if it isn't somehow disingenuous if you're doing yeah. it? To, yeah, yeah. No, that's what I figured you meant. Absolutely not. It's beautiful. Okay. It's lovely. It's it's cyclical and circular and all of beautiful things. It's you have a unique understanding of what those things are, those things mm-hmm. that are critical in adolescence to feeling supportive and being seen. And sometimes yeah. those of us who are really good at providing those things for other people can do so because we didn't have them. And that's how we're so easy to, we can so easily identify them. Right. It's sort of yeah. like, You know, if you talk to somebody whose childhood was really, really terrible, but they didn't have a lot of exposure to other families, they didn't know their childhood was terrible, right? They may have known that they felt bad, but they didn't know that it was different. And likewise for people who got everything they needed. It's sometimes harder for them to know what kids in difficult situations will need because they just had it and didn't have to think about it or or long for it, right? So I think Mm -hmm. that not only are you uniquely qualified, but that it's really beautiful when in the process of supporting and healing other people, we are healing ourselves as well. It doesn't mean that that's why you're doing it or that it's selfish. It just means that that's kind of the beauty of how people heal. And that's part of the reason that that I, I don't do video, for example, is that people heal in relationship to other people. That's how we get hurt. We get hurt yeah. in relationship to other people. So we heal. So some of the best healing comes this way. In fact, the gold standard I've mentioned before in healing from trauma are corrective emotional experiences. And since you cannot go be Mm -hmm. a child again, you cannot have a corrective emotional experience that involves you as a child being taken Mm -hmm. care of by an adult. You can certainly have the experience of being taken care of by a parent or a family member in a way that can be corrective, but in a really potent way, you're having them with these kids. You're getting the corrective emotional experience of supporting them, and it's helping to heal the parts of you that weren't supportive. And that's just lovely. that's how I feel. Yeah, that's just lovely. That's nothing but lovely. And on that note, let's take another break. Another mindfulness moment. This time we are going to do tense and release, but only waist up. So for those of you who may not have done this before... Tense and release, we are going to start up at the top of our head and go to the waist and go to each muscle group and tense it and then release it to help find the spots where you are holding tension and to release it. Okay, so take your attention please up to the top of your head and now stretch your eyebrows up as high as they will go and then just keep pushing. Push them higher, higher, higher so that it almost hurts. Now relax. And now squeeze your eyes shut as tightly as you can. Squeeze, squeeze, squeeze. Harder. Another second or two. And release. Good. Now scrunch your nose up like bunny scrunch it up. Scrunch, 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 scrunch. scrunch, And release. And now make a really deep frown face with your eyebrows, unless you have Botox were there, in which case you can't. But try anyway. Just squeeze, frown. Squeeze your eyebrows together. Squeeze, 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 and let them go. And now smile as hard as you can. Stretch the sides of your face. Make it hurt a little. Smile, smile. Push, push, and release. Good. Now, open your jaw really widely. Stretch it out. Stretch, stretch, stretch. Good, and release. And now clench your jaw. Clench it, clench it, clench it, clench Don't crack your teeth, clench your jaw and release. Good, now pull your shoulders up to your ears. As tightly as you can, push, push them more, push them more, squeeze and release. Good, now curl your biceps and squeeze really hard. Harder, harder squeeze, make your arm shake, make it burn and release. Now pull your hands back. The tips of your fingers are coming back toward your body so that you're stretching out your forearms. Stretch, 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 stretch. And release. And now make fists as tightly as you can. Squeeze, squeeze, squeeze your fists. And release. Give everything a good shake. And back to Sadla. So do you know when you do get triggered? are there times when, and it, maybe it's the anger, right? When I, when people have yeah. trouble understanding if they're getting triggered, I tell them, think of a time or times when you behave in a way that afterwards you feel like you don't have any idea where it came from.
1: Yes. I, okay. w- I do have two things that I feel very much triggered by. One is when somebody says something and it does not exactly match how I perceived the situation. I feel like they're lying and that triggers me so much that I can't even have a conversation with them. Like I <laughs> shut down. You- I shut down because you didn't see it, how I saw it. And we can't have a conversation because we are not on the same page about it.
0: This is very interesting. Can you, is it possible for you to give me a specific example? Can you think of one? Uh, No, not (laughs) a lot of (laughs) questions. That's okay. That's okay. That's good. You don't have to. Let me try to come up with a a slightly more specific um, uh, description, and you tell me if this is right. Okay. If you are talking about, well, let me ask first. Does this is it is it when you're talking about like a factual, like a, a like a piece of academic content, or if you're talking about how you experienced a situation? Are you talking about like? a political or moral belief, or can it be anything? Both. Okay. All of that. All of that. All so
1: of that. So if, if I read a research and if I tell that to somebody, like if I summarize it and the other person goes, well, that's not actually true, I get really offended. And I'm like, okay. Please.
0: Okay, great. I think, so the first place we're going to go with this is ego. So let's talk about ego for a minute. I know that okay. you have a lot of psych education. And so I am very aware that I am, probably going to be telling you things that you already know. So I want to apologize in advance and, and tell you that a lot of the people who are listening don't. So I just want to explain, yeah. mm-hmm. explain ego real quick for them. Ego gets misused a lot. We talk about like, oh my god, he's got a huge ego. Nobody's ego is any bigger than anybody else's. Egos don't really have <laughs> yeah. size. They What egos have is like fragility. Somebody whose ego is very active, I think that's when people are referring to a big ego. They're talking about someone whose ego is easily activated and by that I mean... The ego is neither good nor bad on paper. It's not mm-hmm. It's not negative or positive. It's a voice. It's a voice that forms in childhood based on what we're told about ourselves and the world. And the ego's job is to pop up and protect us from hurtful truths about ourselves. And it has all sorts of strategies for doing that. Up at the top would be comparing, blaming other people. You know, that that those are very, very high ego strategies. So for example, if I say something and someone else disagrees with me, mm-hmm. my ego might take that as a hit on the fact that I am somehow not good enough, not smart enough, inferior, not explaining it right. Something that I think is deficient in me gets poked at and my ego pops up and says, that guy's being an asshole.
1: He's just being a jerk.
0: Right. (laughs) So that I don't have to face what my ego thinks is this truth about the fact that I'm not good enough or whatever. Right. So that's what it, that's my first hypothesis on that. Do you think that that's Mm -hmm. possible?
1: Yeah. I mean, my, entire life has been around education and being the smartest one in the room and being the one who has all the answers. Exactly. That does make
0: sense. Yes. And this is, uh, who talks about this? I think it's Fritz Perls, the Gestalt guy who talks about what happens when people over identify with their career. For example, people who over identify Mm -hmm. with their career, like me, um, if your career goes away then you lose your mind because everything's gone, right? And so in a sense, this is a similar thing where you've over-identified with yourself as the academic. And so when your yeah. knowledge is challenged, right, it's not just that your ego thinks, oh, no, I'm not good enough. There's also a threat that's like, this is all I have. This is yeah. what I have that, that, that helped that – this is what allowed me to survive, This is what got me Mm -hmm. out of that horrible childhood. This is what got me out of deprivation. I had to suffer so much for this, which just adds more value to it. And the idea Mm -hmm. that someone could march into the room and with one arrogant statement, pull that all away certainly sounds like the cause for anger, right? That's a pretty big boundary problem, you know, with, yeah. So, so I think that like, that is definitely your ego getting triggered for sure. So that was one. And you said you had two. What's the other
1: uh, like, differences in how I see something versus how the other person sees something, like, uh, not just, like, facts or something, but just, like, a subjective experience of how this situation went down. If the other person's not seeing it exactly like, like how I am seeing it, it's really difficult to have a conversation.
0: Okay, t- what's the feeling that you have when that happens?
1: Uh... I immediately shut down and I don't want to engage with that person. And I feel like, mm, like dismissed, like,
0: yes, yes. Okay. Dismissed. E- yep. e- yeah. Okay. So I've got a whole bunch of questions about this one. Um, let me start here. When I was a teacher, I had a few students who had moved to Connecticut from India. I think only three. And one thing mm-hmm. that was common among them is that the way that they studied was very different. Well, first of all, the fact that they studied was very different <laughs> from my other kids. but also it seemed to me that the way they had been taught to study was very dependent on memorization and rote yeah. learning, right? So yep. in that yep. Yep. In, yep, in that sense, then, the education has somewhat of a black and white component to how the information is given, right? Like you you learn it, it's this or it's not this, right? It's not. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yep. So I'm, I'm thinking that that sort of orientation, and again, because this is everything learning how you learned what you learned that you're a student is everything. And it seems that once again, it's almost like, it sounds like if I'm imagining the experience for you, it's almost like when someone has a, a, a different experience or a different way of seeing something like you're completely disoriented now, like without yeah. the way you understand it, nothing makes sense because it was only this one way, right? You learned it this way. You yeah. memorized it this way. Does that sound like that's part of it? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So this is connected to the other one a little bit. I'm going to go back to the first trigger, the ego trigger we talked about and then come back to this one with the ego trigger these are really interesting by the way thank you for this is like for being so open and honest about this stuff it's really really <laughs> helpful and brave and i know a lot of people who are listening to it have had these experiences and are going to be very grateful that you shared this um with the first one about <clears throat> if you think somebody is almost lying if they you know, to tell you something different than the way that you thought it was and that it's your ego popping up, you know, if you're not right, if somebody understands a concept differently, etc. because that's poking at this idea of like, I might not be good enough, this one thing that is the thing I have to do to survive. What if I'm not the best at it? The first thing mm-hmm. that comes up for me there is when I think about your identity development, you know, identity development happens when we are teenagers, when we're adolescents mm-hmm. and it happens by... What is reflected back to us by the important adults in our life, and even more importantly, our peers, whatever is reflected back to us is generally what we absorb as our identity. And given how constricted your Mm -hmm. experience of being an adolescent was, it would seem to me that most of what was reflected back to you was about academics, right? Yeah. You weren't really being seen for anything else. Maybe by your peers?
1: Friendships was really good, so good. I was seen for, like, the support and, like, the humor and all of that. Okay, great. So, but, like,
0: humor, you definitely, yeah. people saw you as funny. And, like, if I if I bumped into a girl whom you were in that school with and I didn't know you and I said, what was Sadla like in school? What mm-hmm. would she tell me? The, the first word would definitely be about academics. Okay, so she was a, a great student, really smart. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. What else would she tell me?
1: Uh, I was really good at listening. Yeah, so yeah. People would always yep. come, even like older girls would come and talk to me about their problems, yeah. and I would just listen.
0: Yep, natural healer. So,
1: yep. Yeah, I did have friendships. Like it was difficult to have friendships with same-aged peers, but it was easy to have friendships with younger and older.
0: Interesting, huh? That's interesting. Yeah. Okay, so you that you were a good student, you were really smart, you were a good listener. Anything else that you think they might tell and, me? And
1: mm, and had good clothes.
0: You had good clothes. <laughs> nice. I had good, really good clothes. My mom was a, a tailor, so she made all the good dresses for me. Okay, <laughs> nice. So yeah. this is a little, a little trick that my mentor taught me, Roger. There mm-hmm. are two of them. This one came from Roger, which is if I ask you what the things are that. You know, uh, uh, a cohort member would have told me it's telling me the things that you absorbed as true of yourself, that you had yes. reflected back to you and therefore believe that you are a smart, really good student who was good at listening and had some badass clothes. That those mm-hmm. are all lovely <laughs> things. And there's not a lot in there for you. Like, yeah, you're a good student and you're smart, but you're good at listening. That's lovely, but that mostly serves other people, right? Like, what are the other, what else are you, right? So if you're if you're thinking of yourself only as someone who, not that I think you think of yourself only as this, I'm being a little reductive, but you're an academic and you're good at listening to other people. That's pretty narrow, mm-hmm. right? I'm sure there are a lot of other things about you that people experience that maybe you're not as tapped into, right? Yeah. Like you said, didn't you say humor at some point? Yes. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. so that's a big one, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there are also. What do you? What are the things that you like to do when you're not working?
1: Uh, I like to read a lot. Yeah, but it has it's It has to be a very specific style of writing. I don't <laughs> like fluff. Uh, I and bet you I, don't. I, no, I don't. <laughs> I don't. I,
0: <laughs> Won't tolerate it. No. Don't waste your fucking time, goddammit. Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: and then I like going on walks. Okay. I like uh, playing with my cats. There are four of them. Uh, and I do like thinking about my childhood a lot. Like I'll bring up stories in my head and just think about it. And it feels
0: good. Okay, so you have a pretty, not in a bad way, but you have a very rich internal life, I'm hearing. Now. Yes, now. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, And so one thing that we can do as adults to sort of expand how we think of ourselves is get ourselves into situations when in which other people have the ability to interact with parts of us that maybe we haven't shown them, right? So... If you're a good listener, does that mean that you easily default to being the listener in a conversation?
1: Yes. I don't like talking about myself and... I don't like answering questions. <laughs> <laughs> so,
0: and that serves the purpose, because... If Sadla, I'm how listener, are you? It, She's <laughs> like, what do you What? <laughs> Leave me alone. So if you don't like being asked questions, and you don't like to talk about yourself, and I completely understand that, that for all of the reasons. Here's the problem. People don't get to see you. Right? Right. They don't have access to the other parts of you. So certainly people can know that you're smart because I'm sure that that's obvious and they know that you're committed to your job. You're a good listener. You care about kids. But if you aren't answering questions about yourself or talking, it doesn't have to be about yourself, right, but just about Mm -hmm. your experience of things or whatever. It's not giving other people the chance to reflect things back to you about yourself, right? So right. in the same ways that that couldn't happen because the environment was so restrictive and constricted when you were growing up, now you've sort of created, or I don't want to say you haven't created it. I'm sorry. That's entirely false. You are still inside, right? This yeah. this restricted area that mm-hmm. you were put in as a younger person. And I think maybe part of what we want to think about is how do we push the walls of that out a little bit, Right. How do we create yeah. a sense of safety? Because I think that's what the, is at the bottom of this. In order for you mm-hmm. to want to show yourself to the, to other people and be seen and put yourself in situations that are maybe a little more uncomfortable because you're not just stepping back and listening, you have to feel safe, right? Yes,
1: I I definitely feel like that. I definitely feel like talking about myself is like what I resort to like not talking about myself is what I resort to because I feel like there's nothing to talk about. Oh, okay. Okay. So it's, it's, it's like what you were saying about my identity formation that academics was such a huge uh, aspect to identify with that there was not much happening in other areas. And that's how I feel that if i were to start talking about myself i might not have anything to talk about
0: okay question have mm-hmm. you ever done any journaling yes i did how how is your how was your experience of that was it helpful did you like it did you dislike it it was
1: really helpful when i was writing it and i still have all of it saved. And now that I look back at it, it it's really interesting that I like that came out in writing, but never comes out in conversations exactly. with other people.
0: Yes, that's what I'm getting at. Exactly. What did you stop doing that a while ago? Yeah, I did. Uh, once I
1: became a little bit more stable here in the Bay Area, I went for therapy. And then you know how, like, when you go for a therapy or have a session, then you want to integrate yourself, right? Like, you right, want right, to go right. sit with a friend or
0: yes, yes. come yep.
1: out of it. Yep. So I didn't have any friends back, like the first year I moved here. So I kind of started feeling a little bit more lonely after having therapy sessions because I didn't have anyone to sit with and right. like integrate myself. Yep, and that. Yep. When I also, like, stopped journaling because, I I, I don't know, I just didn't want to be sad anymore. And doing that and not having, like, a closure, um like, a feeling of, like, coming back to, you know, like, just a regular, normal baseline. So
0: I stopped doing it. You stopped. So you pointed to what I'm thinking about when you said that you came across things that don't come out in conversations with other people. I am thinking that one of a, one of the places to start is for us to figure out how you can um, start to have an ongoing conversation first with yourself, right? And okay. you started this conversation by saying that's already one of the places where you feel disconnected, right? It yeah. sounds mm-hmm. like... Um, you've been, you've been thinking about this, all of this a lot, obviously. And like you said, you like thinking about your childhood. And so I'm having this like visual experience of thinking about you with all of this sort of energy up in your head, right? All Mm -hmm. of this stuff that you're Mm -hmm. thinking about, but it's not making its way down out of your head into all of you, right? That's Um, how
1: it feels. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, and that makes sense for a number of reasons. We, You you sort of, um, I was about to say set up for failure, and that's a shitty phrase because you're not failing mm-hmm. at anything. But what I meant is that that there were some circumstances that would make it hard for it to be any other way for you between the style of learning that you were inundated yeah. with and the, the, the really difficult nature of your childhood and the fact that there wasn't a lot of connection and support. Like, it makes perfect sense. I mm-hmm. think that if you were to start journaling again, but maybe, I'm not sure if it would work better for you, let me know with prompts or just freestyle. Like, do you think that you would be more likely to do it or more fruitful in doing it if you had specific questions you were responding to or if you just wrote about whatever was coming up for you in the course of a day? I think freestyle is better. Good, good, yep. Yeah. So I'm thinking that maybe what you and I could do, Um, Mm -hmm. outside of the podcast, since I do, you know, work with everybody who comes on the podcast outside of it to offer some support and bridge them uh, with whatever work they're doing outside Mm -hmm. of this, is that if you did some journaling and then you and I, you could share it with me and we could do a little integration work, might get you going again on Mm -hmm. thinking and pulling some of those things out of the journal and into conversation with somebody else where you're getting feedback for the things that you're thinking and ideas and ways of thinking that are maybe different than, than academic, right. That aren't quite as, as academically analytic and are a little bit more soulful or, you know, open or um, failure free that that's a good place to start, right. To start branching out how you see yourself. I think you've got yourself a little pigeonholed, right? Yeah. 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 But now that I say that, I'm thinking that you've started opening up considerably. If you were insightful, such that that you changed your, you know, your dating habits, right? Opening up mm-hmm. to dating people of of different sex or genders is a is is a pretty big, open minded, open hearted development for you, I would think.
1: It it's isn't. It isn't ba- in the lines,
0: you know. Mm-hmm. It's not right. So that might be the start of a really something really exciting for you. Was it hard? Like, can you are are you comfortable talking about how you came to that? You don't have to, of course, but like how it Uh, did you. I'm comfortable talking
1: with you. And Josh, but not on the the podcast. Okay,
0: perfect, perfect. No, then let's not do it. Let's not do it. I mean, we could cut it out, but I just won't put you through it anyway. (laughs) But the only thing I was wondering, and I will cut this out, but I am actually going to ask this one thing Did you realize you could be interested in women before you met this person, or was it meeting the person that made you realize you could be interested in women?
1: I didn't have the realization, but I had the feeling. And this time I have the realization and the feeling.
0: Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Interesting way to put it. Okay. So you were open to it though. There had to be something in you that has been opening and shifting if you were willing to consider it, right? Yes. It's the person. Okay. Okay. Good, 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 good. All right. So the person you are dating, do you see them as, um, More similar to you or more different than you in terms of vulnerability? We are like the opposite spectrum. (laughs) Good. That's probably good. Yeah. Because
1: she is very, very, very open and vulnerable and just emotionally so much more open. And I am not. okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Is she feeling patient with you? Mm, sometimes, <laughs> not all the time. <laughs> do you do you feel like you know what it is that, like, what sort of openness she would hope for from you that she's not getting? Do you know what it is, or do you not even know what uh, it would look like? She
1: she definitely trusts me, uh, and like knows that I'm like you know genuinely present and trying and wanting to be here. It's the verbal. Verbal, yeah.
0: That, yeah. So this is a, is, yeah, yeah. Verbal affirmation is really hard for me too. And I, I think that because I didn't get it right. It's similar to what we were mm-hmm. talking about earlier. And I don't know if this is how you experience it, but, um, as far as love languages go, I, th- I always think verbal affirmation in my head. Like I think the things, but I don't necessarily mm-hmm. say them to my husband. He's way better at it Thank than I you. am. Yeah. And, even though I think them and believe them, there's something sometimes uncomfortable for me about saying them. It's not like there's like a weird sort of energetic block around it for me. Is that your experience or does it just not occur to you?
1: Yeah, that's what I was initially talking about, how behaviorally it seems like I know what to do, but emotionally it doesn't connect.
0: Right, right. Okay, I see. That's what you meant. Okay, yeah. No, I have that experience too. And I think it's the vulnerability... Right? That's, I think, the biggest part of it is that telling someone your tender feelings about them is incredibly vulnerable. And what's Mm -hmm. interesting about it is that I'm assuming you're having this experience as well. So I'll check first that if I were to say these things to my husband, I can tell you with absolute certainty that there's no threat. My husband isn't going to leave me the next day. I mean, as far as I know, right? But like, I don't expect (laughs) anything like that. I don't feel. Like there's, I don't think in my head that there's any reason why I wouldn't want to say these things or that anything bad would actually happen if I did. There's just Mm -hmm. a very instinctive, energetic block. It's the same thing that happens to me in therapy. How did you do in therapy sitting across from someone talking about yourself? Was that comfortable for you? Um,
1: It was. The therapist was bilingual, so I could, uh, like some of... Sometimes it's really difficult to find a word that would accurately express my thought or feeling in mm-hmm. English. So it helped.
0: Oh, I can imagine being able that. to
1: use both the languages.
0: Yep, yep, yep. Uh,
1: but still, not super easy to uh, like form sentences no. coherently to express.
0: Yeah. So all of this stuff we were talking about earlier about not having parts of you seen, if for most of your life, all of those parts have been sort of dormant, you know, we've got to bring them back. So if we want to look at this from, I like to sort of take different perspectives on the same issue. And if we look at this from a parts work perspective, mm-hmm. sort of, you know, then from a, uh, a sort of massaged internal family systems perspective, I want to think about maybe the, the, the fact that there are some exiled parts of you. Like, yeah. are there parts that you had to send away because they weren't safe in that boarding school? The vulnerable part, right? The softer yeah. parts might have had to get sent away, and we need to bring them back, right? So how would you, do you think that there's a part of you that holds either vulnerability or tenderness or something, and that that maybe you've built up a personality that comes off as a lot more in control and you know, sort of academic and analytical to protect the softer parts? Does it feel like that? Or do you have no contact with those softer parts? I,
1: I definitely feel like I put, uh, like, the playfulness.
0: Playful, yeah.
1: Yeah, like, because it was, like, there's such limited time to go study that I can't waste my time playing or having fun oh, or just
0: being... Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I feel like
1: that's something that uh, feels like very much distant. And I honestly, I I would like to just have some fun, you know, like easy fun, not something that I have to do to feel like it's not, I don't want to plan
0: it. Yep. Yep. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. The first thing that trauma kills is play. Traumatic experiences kill our playfulness and our creativity. And then on top of that, as you said, play was a luxury that you didn't have access to, right? Like Mm -hmm. there's just, like you said, no time. And I have to tell you the sentence, like there was no time for play makes my heart hurt. Like that's so, so sad. And I'm glad that you're aware that you need it and that you want it. And that, as you said, the whole point of play is that it doesn't have to be planned, it doesn't have a purpose, it's just what you want to do and that's what you're doing, right? Just for the yeah. heck of it. If you mm-hmm. can imagine that, if you had a day and somehow convinced yourself not to do anything productive, you were just mm-hmm. going to do something just because you wanted to, do you know what that would even be? Uh, it would be a picnic. Yeah? You sure <laughs> do know. When was the last yeah. time you went on a picnic? Uh, A
1: year ago, year and a half, I guess.
0: Yeah. What is it about picnics that you like?
1: Uh, the sun, first of all. Yeah. Love you and me both. Being in the sun. Me too. And the grass. Yeah. And just like the feeling of wind on my body that makes it, you know, like, more makes me feel more present because I, it's,
0: I don't know. No, you you do know. Of course, it's that. I mean, that's it's all of those things. That's like that's everything. Nature like that is is really potent. You know,
1: when you lose when you lose sensation in your leg and you start tapping it and you start feeling it back again. Yes, it's
0: that feeling
1: that I feel.
0: I know, I know what you mean. Okay, so we need to get you to a picnic but at least to be outside more it sounds like you definitely can can feel how energizing and invigorating it is for you to be outside mm-hmm. and so we that that's the, okay so i'm making a little list here so here's what i'm here's where i am so far i think that these are the primary areas that i think would be the best places to start and that would be mm-hmm. 1 would be getting you better acquainted with yourself and I think the Mm -hmm. first strategy for that is the journaling right okay then there is practicing play which is super tricky and Mm -hmm. because you have a partner I would highly recommend that you share with her that this is something you want to do because if she's different than you she's probably better at planning time for play Right. (laughs) (laughs) So farm out some of this or, you know, get a little support from her on that one, that one you don't Mm -hmm. have to, to do alone. And then the next thing that I think is really, really important to start looking at now is embodiment, is getting you out of your head and into your body. And where I hear this already happening for you is in these experiences outside. Right. Yeah. The sun on your skin, the wind, the feeling of the air, the feeling of the grass. That is an intense sensory experience that pulls you right into your body. And I suspect that's part of the reason you like it so much, because you spend so much time in your head. So much. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah. Do you do any breath work already? Is that something you do? Uh, I started doing
1: it after your first
0: podcast. Oh, oh my gosh, don't <laughs> tell me things like that cuz they make me so happy. It's like totally just gives me like I, oh. It is. Thanks Josh. Josh knows the, how excited I get about this shit. <laughs>
1: I I do the lemon water and the nice. box
0: breathing. Oh my gosh, you just made my year. I love and that. And
1: anytime somebody is sucking my energy up, I do the five differences.
0: Ah, oh, beautiful. So are they helping? Yes. Good, good. So stick with the morning stuff, because for you, the idea of you just taking care of yourself and your body has to be kind of mm-hmm. revolutionary. That doesn't sound like, you know, it's been a huge, but maybe it has been. I don't know. I didn't ask that. Like, how has your self-care been historically? Uh,
1: not good. Not
0: good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, it's it's like sporadic. It's here and there, and sometimes it's oh, I'm gonna do this for myself today, and then long months of nothing,
0: and then one day again. So that's okay, consistent. okay, okay. And so, when you think about doing things for yourself, like the idea of taking time for yourself, is that comfortable or is it uncomfortable?
1: It's not like it's it doesn't uh, feel like genuine,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but I do want to do it. Okay.
0: okay. <laughs> good for you. Good, 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 good. Okay. So because you have this really intense sensory experience of outside, I think that combining the embodiment work with the, with being outside is a, is a really powerful, powerful way to do it. And so taking times, even if it's like five minutes at work when you have a prep period, or I don't know how they do it for school psychologists, but you know, when you can just get outside for five minutes, even is going outside and just doing sensory scans, just sitting outside and saying, okay, first, what are the things that I see? And just mm-hmm. noticing like the, the actual color of the grass, like that very specific green that it is at different stages, like really imprinting that into your memory, and looking at whether there's people or children or buildings or anything, but really, really taking in whatever that visual stimuli is and then doing the same thing with what do I feel on my skin? You know, the sun, the grass, the air, and just really zeroing in on that and just kind of running through. Your five senses, seeing what you can get in terms of smells, smell and taste is always a little bit harder. So just seeing Mm -hmm. what you can pick up and sitting outside for a few minutes whenever you get the chance and just really focusing on experiencing it through your body is a really good way to get that started. So since you're already doing the lemon water and the box breathing in the morning, which is the absolute best way to get started, and you've been doing that since the first one. So that's been for a few weeks. What's your, yeah. where do you live? Do you have a house, an apartment? What's your living situation? An apartment. Do you have a balcony or a deck? Yes. Okay. Uh-huh. So maybe taking a little bit of time, just a few minutes outside in the morning, just to do a quick little sensory scan and take in some of the nature. That might be like sort of the next thing to tack on to that morning routine. And just that sounds good. Yeah. 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 So add that and then. How about we do this? I am going to ch- check in with you tomorrow or Monday and talk about setting up a time to talk. And mm-hmm. we'll maybe work with a little bit of journaling and work on some embodiment exercises and some fun and some play. And then after you've had the chance, after we've had the chance to practice those for a few weeks, if you're up for it, maybe you can come back on and tell what's worked and what hasn't, and we can look a little bit more deeply at the trauma underneath it. But I think we should get you resourced first before we jump into the trauma, because, yeah. right? Because you're still so much in your head, the trauma work is going to demand the embodiment, but also it's going to demand that you really fortify yourself before you go in. So I think rather than going in and poking around at the I am's and the actual trauma memories and triggers that we start with some embodiment and some communication with yourself and then Mm -hmm. take a step into looking at the trauma after that. Does that sound good? Yeah. Yeah. We will talk to you very soon, and thank you again so much. Okay, thank you. Bye, everybody. Bye, Josh. Bye. Bye. This has been Psychotherapist, and remember, if you would like to be a guest on the podcast, email us at... Oh, I forgot it for a minute. No, don't, don't edit that out. Just leave it, because it's pretty much how i roll Um, if you would like to be a guest on the podcast you can email us at the psychotherapistpodcast.com or you can dm me on instagram psycho underscore therapist underscore renee we will soon have merch for sale once we build a website which i won't ever do so if you're the person who knows how to build that website hit me up talk to you next week peeps bye